James 2, verse 10. We're going to talk about tonight faith, the real thing. Faith, the real thing. James 2, verse 10. If we could stand together just to read a few verses, then you get to be seated the rest of the time, and I alone have to stand, but that's all right. All right, James 2, verse 10. For whoever shall keep the whole law, the whole law. By the way, Sandra, can we have cookies and, and coffee and stuff next Wednesday night? All right, y'all spread the word. We're going to have cookies, coffee, and then I think some cookies and probably some coffee <laughs> next Wednesday night. I hope we can have some coffee. Now, let's start over verse 10. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Where did that leave us? Leaves us in need of a Savior. Because everybody stumbles in at least one of them. All right. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. So speak, so talk. Now watch this. So guide your tongue, or speak, and do or act as those who will be judged by the law of what? So notice we homes in on, this is James. He's going to be on this the whole book. What you say and what you do. What you say and what you do. What you say and what you do. All right? Now, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Ah! There's one compelling reason to be merciful. If you want it, you better give it. All right? So he says, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. No, I skipped a verse, didn't I? Verse 12. Now, so speak and so do as those will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy rejoices over judgment. Mercy is to be preferred over judgment. Verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have any works? Can faith save him? Now the answer is, is yes, but here's what James is going to show us now. Look what it says in verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. I'm sorry you're starving to death. God bless you. See ya. That's what he's saying. You got somebody starving on the street, and you say, God bless you, and you walk away. And that doesn't mean you're supposed to feed every homeless person on every corner. He, it's a principle here. He's going to drive it home stronger and stronger as we go along. You say, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus, now here is the key verse to chapter 2. This is chapter 2's key verse. Let's read it together. Verse 17. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by what I do or by my works, by my actions. Do you believe that there is one God? Big deal. He says, you do well. Even the demons are not atheists. Did you know that? Atheists are dumber 
than demons. And I can say that because David called an atheist a fool, so I can say that. But even the, the demons acknowledge a God, and they shake, they tremble. Now the last verse. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Well, let's just read a little bit further. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, a corpse in a coffin, dead, so faith is also a corpse in a coffin. It's dead if it is not followed with works. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Bless our hearts with it and build our faith with it in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. All right, you can be seated. Thank you. This is good stuff. I like what James is going into here. And let's just look at it now. Verses 10 and 11. James is telling us that God's law is an unfragmented whole. Let's just say we had a cherry pie right here. And you took one bite. You took one bite. You've really bitten into the whole pie, haven't you? There's no getting away from it. If you have just one bite, you've bitten into the whole pie. You've, you've touched the whole pie. If you have just one bite out of that pie, he says, now the law is like a pie in ten slices, if you will, if you, if you transgress a part of it, you've touched the whole. It's an unfragmented whole. That's the law. If you break one commandment, you've broken all of them. If you eat one piece of that pie, you have touched the whole pie. There's no getting away from it. That's what he's saying. So to stumble in one point, like showing partiality, is to break all of it. That is the whole. You've broken all of it. And this is why, folks, we've got to understand this about the law, that the law did not come to make us righteous. The law did not come so that we would see those ten... When Moses came off that mountain, glowing in the dark, his face illuminated with the Shekinah glory of God, and he brought those ten commandments down and gave them to the people, it was not so that they would look at those commandments and perfectly obey them and become righteous. Listen, let's just take the Ten Commandments and throw them into a, 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 a I don't know, a steel molder or a, a, a melter. Throw them in there and, and into a, something that makes a microscope mold. And let those commandments become a microscope. Then we pull them out of that mold. Now those commandments are a microscope. The slide you slide under there is your sin. Now, before the law came, before the commandments were given, okay, we knew that we were in sin. We knew that something was wrong. We knew that something was drastically wrong with the human race, but it was not 
clarified or crystallized or made plain anything like after we received the law. Paul said, when I received the law, it slaughtered me. Because on the slide goes our sin. It goes under the microscope. The microscope pulled our sin up close. And we saw the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. And what did Paul say that the law was given for? It was to, it was to whip us into Christ. Because all you had to do was try to live it. Try to live it a month. Just try to live it a month. You fail, you fail, you fail, you fail. And what it finally did, it became the schoolmaster that let us know I've got to have a Savior. I'm going to have to get to God by grace. I'm going to have to get to God by something that covers my sin because I can't live this law. Okay? Can't do it. I mean, just try it. The more you try, the more you fall. Better off that you not even know what it is. Then know it and then try to live it. Because have you ever had a habit that you said, I'm going to quit this thing. I'm going to quit this habit. It's like me saying right now, don't think pink. Because as soon as you say, I'm going to quit it, all of a sudden the thing becomes ten times more ferocious. Now, imagine trying to live out the law with no Savior, no grace, no nothing. I either perfectly live these Ten Commandments or I am doomed. You know what that would do to you in a week, in a month? You know what that would do? It would make you a neurotic mess. Thank God for a Savior. No wonder John said excitedly, Behold the Lamb of God. I think he said it like, Hallelujah! Glory to God, behold the Lamb of God. Who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world that we see so clearly now under the microscope of the Ten Commandments. Amen? So, I mean, it's really, really important here. So he, he's talking about the law. He says if you mess up with one, you mess up with the whole thing. Now, verse 12 and 13, he says, so you're going to have to he's to walk and talk as those who will be judged by the law that when obeyed brings liberty. Now notice what he says in verse uh, 12. Speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Now here is what I believe he's saying here in this verse. You have the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's a different kind of law. It's the law of grace. It's the law of liberty. The, the, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament didn't bring liberty. They brought bondage. Even Paul said, when I read the law, it wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. You know what that is? Lust. He said, when I tried to obey the law, and, 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 but that law brought my sin under the microscope. And it wrought in me, it, it, it manifest, it made me see that within my members was this, this lust issue. And he said, Woe is me! Who will deliver me? Ah, see, the New Testament says Jesus Christ will. Now, in the Old Testament, you had the Ten Commandments that slew you and, and drove you to a, to a Messiah of grace. But in the New Testament, we've got the law of grace. The law of grace. 
For instance, Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth shall do what? Make you what? Free. See, freedom, folks, doesn't come, watch this now, it doesn't come by what you experience. It comes by what you know. Freedom comes by what you know. Now, if you have an experience with God that is real, I'll guarantee you behind that experience there will be a truth that you come to know. But it's what you know that sets you free, not what you experience. You can experience a lot of things that don't set you free, but what you know. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, notice he calls this the law of liberty. He's talking about the Word of God. If you, experience, if you obey the teachings of Jesus Christ, they are not like the Ten Commandments. We're in the law of grace, not the law of Moses. And so when you walk according to the law of grace, you follow the teachings of Christ, you live the way he told you to, and you obey him, he sets you free. Hence, the law of liberty, not the law of bondage. Thank God. Listen, I don't know what I would have done with me in the Old Testament. What would you have done with you? In the, I would have walked around terrified all the time. You know, back in those days, God was opening up the earth and swallowing folks. Fire was coming down from heaven and vaporizing them. I would have always been looking up or looking down. Because it was a, it was a dispensation of judgment and of, 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 of law. The law that made us see the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. But now in the New Testament, no, we're under the law of grace. And that's the teachings of Christ and of the apostles. The New Covenant, the New Testament. It's the law of liberty. It's the law that sets us free. So he says, under this law of liberty, here's what you need to watch. What you say and what you do. Because he's going to take us now into the difference between the law and faith works and faith. In the Old Testament, it was works, and everybody failed. In the New Testament, it's faith, where you are declared righteous, and you don't have to work for it. Amen? Now, look at John chapter 12, verse 47, real quick. John 12, 47. Now look what Jesus says here. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. Why do we judge, folks? Why do we judge when even Jesus said he didn't judge? Now I do believe, and I agree, that you need to judge the fruit of a thing, because if it's not good fruit, you don't need to fool with it. And there's lots of things out there that claim to be of God, and they're really not. But look what he says here. He says... I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me, verse 48, and does not receive my words, has that which judges him, the word that I have spoken. That's the law of liberty, the law of grace. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. What is the law of liberty? What is the, who's the lawgiver in the new covenant? Well, it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the new covenant lawgiver. He's the one who told us how to live. He said, you, 
he was always saying, you have heard that it was said by them of old time in the Old Testament, but I say to you, and he became the lawgiver of the new covenant. And it's the law of liberty and the law of grace, the law that brings freedom, not bondage and judgment. Everybody with me? So he says, be sure you're merciful, be sure that you're merciful in the law of liberty when you're walking with Jesus. He said, be sure you're merciful because here's the way the New Testament, the New Covenant dispensation works. Judgment falls without mercy on those who show no mercy, but mercy falls on those who do show mercy. That's the way the New Covenant operates. That's the way the New Testament dispensation works. In the Old Testament, what was it? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You slap me, I'm going to slap you. You whoop me, I'm going to whoop you. You say something bad about me, I'm going to say something bad about you. How many of you ever wanted to go back there just shortly and then come back? But that was the Old Covenant. There wasn't any talk about all this mercy stuff in the Old Covenant. Eye for an eye, somebody takes your eye, you take theirs. Tooth, somebody knocks your tooth out, you knock theirs out. But in the New Covenant, on the New Dispensation, with the new lawgiver, Jesus, he said, listen, here's the way you walk under the dispensation of the New Covenant. You have mercy. Even when somebody's not having mercy on you, you have mercy. Because when you need mercy, God's going to see to it that you get it because you were merciful. In the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But here comes the New Covenant. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For the same measure you judge, you will be judged. Now, first mercy, now judgment. And he says, For the same measure you measure out, it's going to be measured back to you when it comes to harsh, cruel, unfair, carnal, fleshly, judgmentalism. Don't judge unless you want to be judged. And he says, why are you focusing on the speck in your brother's eye when there is a telephone pole in yours? Why are you doing that? He says, because, listen, if you'll just focus on yourself and you growing in faith and you growing in the things of the Spirit, God will take care of the brother with the speck. You can't operate on something. How many of you would go to an ophthalmologist who... who came into that office after your eyes had been dilated. And when he came in, he had a two-by-four across his eyes. And he said, now lean into the little deal and don't blink. But he's got a two-by-four here, and he's doing this, just trying to find, even find the machine. You're not going to let him operate on your eye. You want somebody who sees better than you do. When your eyes are dilated and vulnerable and staring in that bright light, Jesus said, this is the way it works in the new covenant. If you want mercy, give mercy. If you don't want to be judged, don't judge. Amen, Pastor Jeff. I'm just amening myself there. I thought that was a good spot to do it. You see what I'm saying, everybody? Now in verse 14, look at it now. What does it profit, my brother? Now here he's going to come to the crux. This is really the crux of chapter 2. He's going to deal with this more than anything else. Verse 14, what does it profit if you say you have faith and there are no works to, to back it up? Can faith save you? 
Now, let me answer that, because if you're not careful, James will confuse you. Say with me, yes, faith is what saves me. So, can faith save him? Yes, but he's not talking here about the faith that puts its trust, trust in Christ. He's talking about, the can faith, a stated faith that has no evidence for it, can that faith save you? A faith that never shows any evidence of being God-faith. He says, it's a rhetorical question. No. Because you can say you have faith, but here's what James is going to drive home. If you have God-faith, and where does faith, new covenant faith, come from? God has given to every man the measure of faith. So you can't say, I don't have enough faith, because that's saying God didn't give you enough. God gave you every, all the faith you need to begin. And then he gives you all the faith you need to continue, and then he gives you all the faith that you need to end, to finish. But he's, he's, he's saying here, he's saying, now I'm looking at people who say they have faith, but there's never any evidence at all, no works, no actions, no nothing, that reveal that they have faith. Because he's going to argue that Bible faith will cause you to act, will cause you to become involved in works, will show itself, will manifest. Listen, if you say that's an orange tree, I say to you, show me the oranges. You say that's an apple tree, I say, show me the apples. If you say that's corn planted out there, I say, show me the corn. There's evidence. Anything that is real and living, and you call it something, then it will show it. Anything God created, if God calls something something, it will sooner or later attest to the... Why did Jesus curse that fig tree? Because there were no figs on it. It was not blossoming in mature blossoms. If you look closely at the text, uh, it was not blossoming the way it should have been at that time of the year. It may have had some nominal fruit, but it was not what it should have been at that time of the year. All commentators agree with that. That's why he cursed it. So he says, faith, Bible faith, the faith that God puts in you will cause you to act, to get involved in works that are righteous and good and bring forth fruit. You'll witness, you'll pray, you'll read your Bible, change will come into your life. Because let's face it, folks, we're living in a, in a nation filled with people who say they have faith. But you look, where's the apples? Where's the oranges? Where's the corn? Where's, where is it? You say you have faith, all right? And, and James is really strong about this. He's dealing with a false claim of faith. A false claim. Faith that shows no evidence. His whole point is going to be true faith, true faith, real faith has works. People who go around claiming to be Christians or saved but have no works, show no evidence, do not have saving faith. They don't have saving faith. Because saving faith will show itself, reveal itself in works. I can remember uh, when I really gave my heart to the Lord, when I really did it, and, and he, he really touched me, the first thing that happened to me was I began to 
it began to, to come out in action. I began to pray. I remember the Bible came alive to me for the first time in my whole life. I remember turning to the book of Romans. And it, it used to be just a bunch of these and thous and wouldest and shouldest and couldest and all that before. And I turned to it and all of a sudden, boom, it just leaped out and it began to talk to me. Because why? Because now I was in saving faith. Saving faith will always reveal itself. It'll always manifest in works. James is saying, look, if your body has no spirit, you're, you're a corpse in a coffin under the ground. He's saying, if faith doesn't manifest in works, it's in a coffin in the ground. It's D-E-A-D. Dead. D-O-A. Dead on arrival. It's dead. So some of these churches, I visited around for a while there, and you talk about God's frozen chosen. And I, I wondered about them, because they're in there saying they had faith, but there, there were no works, there wasn't even any mention of God, no mention of Christ, no mention... Listen, if Jesus gets a hold of you, it's going to come out, it's going to manifest, it's going to show, it's going it's to manifest in works, in works, in action, that attest to the fact that you've got saving faith. Look at verse 15. He says, for instance, if you see somebody naked in need of food or in need of clothing, and you just say to them, God bless you, see you later, he's just drawing an example. He's saying, where is saving faith in you? That you could look at that, you could look at that need and walk away and not have any compulsion to involve yourself in works. Uh, He's just giving us one example. And there's a million examples. Uh, how can you know somebody who, who's depressed and struggling with life and going through all kinds of problems, and you know they don't know God, you know they don't know Christ, you know they have no relationship with Jesus, and you can sit there and watch them week after week, month after month, and not have any compulsion at all to tell them about Jesus. Sooner or later, how is it that somebody who says they have saving faith never wants to pray? Now, I know that your prayer life can go through ups and downs. I understand that. Mine sure has. But I'm going to tell you something. I know people who have no compulsion to ever pray. Well, I'm going to promise you something. If they have no, no movement, no prodding, no motivation, no desire, no moving towards any kind of prayer at any time, they do not have saving faith. There's just no way. Even if your prayers are, Lord, help me, and you, know, and you pray while you're driving, let me tell you something, at least you're talking to God. People who don't have saving faith, they have no compulsion to talk to God. I've had people look me right in the eye. You know, I haven't, I haven't ever prayed, or I haven't prayed in years. I've tried, I got on my knees, but I, I could not even think about or picture praying there was just nothing there. Here's what I know about them. They're not saved. That's not me judging them. That's the Word of God. Judging them in a good way, in love. If I didn't know him, I'd want somebody to get up here and talk like this. Because <laughs> then I would be able to go, oh, well, maybe I don't know God. He says, he says, in verse 17, faith without works is completely and totally 
dead. Totally dead. It's dead. Faith's evidence is works. Now, works don't save. Look at verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Uh-uh. No, no. He says, works, faith's evidence is works. Works don't save you. They do not save you, but they are an evidence that you are saved. They're an evidence that you're saved. Works. It's interesting, the, the Greek word here is energeo. Energeo. Where do you think, what English word do you think we derive from energeo? Energy. So the whole idea is when God gets a hold of you, God gives every human being on earth a, a dispensation of energy. The day comes when your body dies and that, what God gave you to live and move and have your being on earth is gone. Because you can't function, you're not on this earth unless you've been given energeo, energy. Now here's the whole idea. Before you're saved, the energeo that God gave you, that he gave you energy, gave you a mind, gave you the ability to move, gave you the ability to think and see and hear and, and, and produce. Until you're saved, that's all that energy is being spent on sin, a sinful lifestyle living without God. Sin. That whole, that world out there, those terrorists that blow up bombs and kill people, they're using energeo that God intended to be used for righteous works. But it's not, because they don't know Him. But when you get saved, here's the whole deal. God says, I've given you a time period to live. I've given you the energy to live it. Now, use the energeo for righteous works that attest to the fact that you're saved. Because, folks, let me tell you something. The older you get, I mean, I'm 51 now. I'm going to tell you, the older I get, the more I think about time in an economical sense. All right, if God's good to me, I've got X number of years left to do what? To spend the energy he gave me for things that will bring me eternal reward. So every time I teach, every time I pray, every time I talk to somebody about the Lord, that's using the energy he gave me. My dad, listen, just a few weeks before he died, I went over to his house and I saw him and he was, he was sitting down with a little walker in, in front of him. He'd only known for about a year that he had blood cancer. His hands were trembling. His energy, his energeo that God gave him was quickly slipping. And he said to me, Jeff, whatever you're going to do with your life, do it, because believe me, your days are numbered. And that just hit me between the eyes. There's a, you have been given. God knows the day that the energeo he gave you is going to be up. He knows. It's a time period. And it's different for every human being. And when it's up, it's up. That's what my dad was telling me. When it's up, it's up. So use the energy, oh, the energy for righteous works. Use it wisely because God will let you use it for evil if you want to. But you'll be judged for it and you won't get a reward. If you're with me, say Amen.
It's a sober thought. It's a sobering thought. Sobering thought. I look at, watch the news, and I see people all around me. Singers, hugely, immensely talented people, using the, the gifts and the energy that God gave them to live out a life for righteous works, spending it on themselves, just on themselves, drooling to make a bunch of money, just out there to, for fame and fortune. And, and folks, let me tell you something. Every day, that energy, it's like the sand sifting through the hourglass. It's being used up. And, and once it sifts through, you don't get it back. You don't get it back. It's gone. How'd you use it? That's what James is saying. If you have saving faith, it's going to manifest in righteous use of energy. Verse 19, to believe in God is not saving faith. That's what he's saying in verse 19. He says, big deal. You say you believe in God, big deal. No big deal. That's not a big deal. Because the demons believe in God. And they tremble. It's really, really interesting here. Tremble is the Greek word friso, and it means bristle. They believe in God. They know that he's there. They know they're going to answer to him. And they bristle. <laughs> they bristle at the thought of God. But they believe in God. He said, no big deal. To say, I believe in God does not save you. It's when you say, I believe in God and I believe in who he sent to save me from my sins and you accept his son, that's saving faith. That's saving faith. To say you believe, there's going to be a lot of people, the judgment folk, the judgment seat folks, who are going to go before God at the great white throne judgment and say, I, I believed in you, I believed in you. You know what God's going to say? I can tell you what Revelation says he's going to say. Depart from me. You workers of iniquity, I never knew you. I never knew you. And there's going to be a lot of shocked people because they're going to say, I, when on earth, attested that I believed in a God. There has to be a God. God will say, if you had really believed in me, when I touched you that one time, I personally believe it'll be one of the vivid memories of the judgment. When I touched you that one time, you were in that church, you were in that meeting, you were at that evangelistic campaign, or you were driving down the road and you were, you were just uh, channel surfing, and you ran across that radio preacher and, and he spoke just long enough to prick your conscience and you heard the name. Now you're ready for this? I know what some of you might be thinking. What about people in Africa or India, or some dark corner or some continent where they never heard the gospel, what about them? Paul says in Romans 1, they'll be judged by how their conscience responded to the obvious reality of God. How did their conscience respond? Because God has written his law in every single conscience of every human being on earth. And if you never hear the gospel... You say, what will I be judged by? You will be judged by how you responded to the voice of your conscience when your conscience said, this is right and this is wrong. And Paul says, so that they are without any excuse. That's why it's way better to hear the gospel. Because here's some guy out there in Africa, he's never going to hear it. From the day he's, he's born to the day that he dies, but he's walking through life, and, and one day, his conscience says to him, 
what you're thinking about doing or what you just did was wrong. And then he is supposed to respond to the dictates and the voice of his conscience. And if he says, forget it, and continues in his sin and doesn't respond to his conscience, that's what he'll be judged by. You're judged by the light that you had. That's why, hey, we got a lot of light, a lot of word. Right now we're getting light and getting word. That's a good thing. It makes you grow. But it's also a thing that brings accountability. You're going to have to live it now because now you know. Okay? If you're being blessed, say amen or oh me. <clears throat> now in verse 21 he says, here's the deal. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now hold that thought. Underline those three words. Justified by works. Justified by works. Now turn to Romans 4, verse 1, and I want to show you something. And I'm going to ask you while you're turning there. Was Abraham justified by works? According to James, he was. He's arguing. He's making a point. He's saying, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works? But let's look at Romans 4. It's going to sound like he's contradicting the Bible. Look at verse 1. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, by actions, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and then he was declared righteous. So here, Paul is saying, he's saying, was Abraham justified by works? No, he was justified by faith. Then what in the world is James saying? Wasn't Abraham justified by works? Here's what James is saying, and I'm just showing you this to drill this idea and this concept home. Was not Abraham justified by works? Yes, because those works attested to saving faith. When did God declare him righteous? He declared him righteous when Isaac was laid out on the altar and the knife was lifted and he was about to bring it down on his only son. And God sent an angel and said, Stop. And he pulled away, and there was a ram caught in the thicket. And then God said, Now I know that you believe me. And there and then, he declared him righteous by faith. And he became the father of our faith, not just because he was the first one declared righteous by faith, but because he set the pattern that we were not ever going to be declared righteous by works alone, but by faith that moved us to the works. So Abraham became our pattern. He's the father of our faith. Why? Because he was the first one declared righteous by faith. When was he declared righteous? When he did works that attested to a saving faith. Now, the first work you ever do where God declares you righteous is this one. Father, I'm a sinner. I believe you sent your Son to die for my sins. I receive him as my Savior. Forgive me of all my sins. In Jesus' name. That's a work. That's an action. Moved by faith, 
when you hear the Word of God. And the minute you involve yourself in that action, what does God do? Righteous. By faith. Works backing it up. Because you repented and you turned to Him. It's the first of many, many works. Okay? That's why everybody goes down front at Billy Graham. And Billy Graham makes a great point. He says, nobody, nowhere in the New Testament did Jesus ever call anybody, but he, but he called them publicly. Why? Because it's a work. As soon as you take one step toward God, that's a work. Energeo, being, being exercised. Energy being spent in a righteous work. And he says, righteous. Are you all with me? That's, that's the crux of James' whole argument. Now let's just go on. We're almost done. Everybody say praise God. This is good stuff. I like this. So faith was the motivator behind the act. Abraham's faith found fulfillment in action. Now he talks about Rahab the harlot. Nothing more needs to be said. Rahab was a harlot. But when those spies came over and she saw them, God touched her heart with faith. And isn't it amazing that Rahab was declared righteous? And do you know that Rahab, the harlot, wound up in the lineage of Christ? Just by the step of faith. What was her action? She hid the spies. Saving faith manifested in action, and God declared her righteous. Amen. So let me just recap this quickly. If you've got true saving faith, it's going to manifest in trusting God in trials and temptations. You will trust God. <clears throat> you will trust God in trials and temptations. Second, saving faith, true faith, is manifested in accepting all of God's children without favoritism. That's in chapter 2. You will not be partial with people. You'll love them because everybody's equal at the foot of the cross. Saving faith and what does that do to a lot of churches? Who? There's a whole lot of churches that don't do that at all. Now, how about this? Saving faith, true faith, will manifest in doing what God tells you to do by putting faith into action. You will act if you have saving faith. You will act if you have saving faith. Amen? Isn't it beautiful that it's first manifested when you hear the gospel? I was sitting in a juvenile home, 16 years old, and, and there was about 50 of us kids there, boys, teenage boys. And this Baptist preacher came in and shared the gospel. I'd never in my lifetime heard the gospel. All I knew was Jesus Christ, superstar. Are you really who they say you are? That was on the radio in 69 when I got saved. But I heard the gospel, and you know what? Out of 50 or so of us, 49 of them didn't move. I was the only one in that group that got touched with saving faith because it made me stand up and walk towards that preacher and say, pray with me. And I began to weep. And as soon as I took a step towards him, saving faith, which manifested in action, brought me into contact with God. That's the way it always works. And so saving faith made me walk towards him. I went into action and I got saved. 
That's the way that it works. Isn't that beautiful? And that's the first work of many, many, many thousands in, in our lives once we have saving faith. Let's stand together, can we? <coughs> Now, next week, we're going to talk about what you say and how you say it, but it's going to be positive, not negative. Don't worry about it. Have you noticed in these political races the gravity of words? Oh, my gosh. You know, those guys say one sentence, and it goes all over the world in an hour. And I was watching that this week, and I was thinking... You know, isn't that just a great example of the reality of words? Because we think, well, if we just say something, you know, with a couple of people around, but no, no, God hears it. And it becomes instant news in heaven. I mean, if, if I was one of those guys running for president, I wouldn't say another word. I'd just stand there and look presidential. Because they say anything, and they get nailed the next day. I mean, it's, oh, Lord. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of saving faith. Thank you, Lord, that you came to deliver us from the tyranny of the Old Testament law that put us under condemnation and judgment. And we're under the law of grace tonight, the law of liberty, the law that brings freedom. Help us, Lord, to put feet to our faith so that our faith is perfected and matured and strengthened and grows. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.